HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bonnie knows when you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Do you know who the first female to be featured in a TV cooking show was? Maybe you think you know, but we're going to find out today on A Taste of the Past. How do you do? And welcome to my beautiful gas kitchen. <laughs> that is the voice of the very first female to be featured on a TV cooking show. Her name was Dione Lucas. I'm sure that many of you probably thought I was going to say, oh, of course, Julia Child. Uh-uh. Dione Lucas. Dione Lucas was on television. She was first on television in 1948, I believe. We're going to find out all the facts later. And unfortunately was sort of overshadowed by the greater presence of, of Madame Child and also by the plethora of now cooking shows that we have. So unless you're of a particular age, you probably don't remember Dione Lucas, but there is so much to remember. And although I say she was largely forgotten, she was also probably misremembered in some ways. And today, to talk all about it, I have Jill Adams from... Uh, Mel- from Melbourne, Australia. Yes, I was going to say Sydney for a minute. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> Jill Adams. Jill is a historian who has done extensive work in using oral history to research her subjects. Uh, she is the author of Barista, a book on um, 
Coffee Brewing, and about to a book about to be published called A Good Brew, about tea and coffee trading in Australia. Jill uh, has done quite a bit of research on Dione Lucas, and we're going to ask her all about that. And along with us is also Margaret Happel. Margaret is uh, was a former... Um, food editor for Ladies Home Journal. She started out at McCall. She was at Ladies Home Journal. She went to Good Housekeeping. She started her own magazine. She has been in the food and business world for a good number of years and has actually met Dione Lucas. And I didn't mean that in a bad way, Margaret. <laughs> Margaret also is the current president of Les Dames de Scoffier chapter, New York chapter. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you, you Linda. Linda. Okay, so Dione Lucas, what do we know about Dione Lucas? We know that she was an artist in with her food preparation, and she felt that food was, and cooking, was an artistic endeavor. Jill, how, what got you interested in her? Um, I, was, I, I first became interested in Dione. I found a supplement to a very popular um, Australian magazine called the Australian Women's Weekly, and it was a 30-page lift-out supplement um, with a picture of Dione Lucas on the front wearing a rather curious Bavarian sort of outfit. And she was in Australia, obviously, cooking Cordon Bleu food. Now, it was very easy to date the supplement. It had very clearly sort of 50s, 60s graphics in it. And I was quite surprised to know or to you know to to find out that in Australia in the 1950s when I thought our diet was very British that we had this celebrity superstar from America cooking cordon bleu French cooking and the recipes were very very French and quite complex so that was what first it was first of all it was her this woman who looked quite strange and the fact that she was giving Australian housewives when you say she cooking. looked quite strange you mean sort of stuffy it and, was this and funny little outfit it was <laughs> it was a little puffed sleeved top and very tightly fitting bodice with sort of braid on it and and you know down into a very narrow waist and quite a puffed skirt and she was sort of looking up at the camera smiling preparing um food and I, I just thought this is not what I thought the 50s mm-hmm. were about in Australia well let's Let's listen to a little bit about, well, what, who was Dione Lucas and what was her background? Margaret, can you actually met her towards the end of, of uh, her career? Yes, I met her twice, uh, Linda. One was in the early 60s when she was running a restaurant near Bloomingdale's called The Egg Basket. And then later, um, I would say probably a year before she died, when she had... Um, a, a restaurant of food experience and a cookware store, uh, which um, there I did an article on her for Ladies Home Journal. Now, just to give our listeners a little background, Dione Lucas was born in 1909 and died in, in 1971. So that's the period of time we're talking about the late 40s um, and throughout the 50s and then a break in 60s. So she was really um, a post-war Brit who moved here to America. She moved here, I understand, from Jill, uh, I think, at the very beginning of World War II. Isn't mm-hmm. that right, Jill? Yes, yes. She moved to Canada first and then made her way down to New York with her two sons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, she, so she went to the Cordon Bleu. She was a graduate, that, as far as we know, she was a graduate of the Cordon Bleu in Paris. Yes, and yeah. then she and one of her co-students, Rosemary Hume, went to London and set up the Cordon Bleu in London. Mm-hmm. And that's another area that Dione's been 
forgotten about. We always associate the London Cordon Bleu School with Rosemary Hume right. um, and you know other other people, but Dione's been dropped off that as well. So that you know, I find that quite interesting. But they had the Cordon Bleu in London and a restaurant in Sloane Square. Mm. And eventually, then they established a she established a cooking school in New York City as well. Yes, yes, yeah. she she came down to New York, um, worked for a time at Longchamps, turning mm-hmm. mushrooms, fluting mushrooms in the window of the store, and then she, she was funded to set up a, a a restaurant and cooking school in in New York. Interesting, um, Margaret. You having met her and and writing an article about her, um, anything in particular that you learned that would um, be that would enlighten our listeners to well, a little bit about her. She truly had the most phenomenal palate. Um, I remember the article I did uh, involved Oeuf uh, Saint Gelais, which was really uh, a new experience for the American palate, but it was also the burgeoning interest in French food, and she was there as a pioneer. The aspic truly to this day is one of the best I've ever tasted. Mm. Uh, also, she did a ballantine of chicken. And I think at the time uh, when a lot of food photography was faked, she absolutely insisted that her food be the genuine experience. And it showed and it was beautiful and it was something our readers related to. Yeah, You know, it's interesting because her early shows, I think some of the later ones were colorized, but... Her early TV shows were all in black and white, and food is not that attractive in black and white. But she was meticulous in her instructions and in her technique. Uh, I, for one, have never cooked any of her recipes. Either of you? Yes. You did, Margaret. And I know Jill has, too. Uh, you can't make a mistake with Dione. At least I didn't have a mistake. Uh, You're absolutely right, Linda. There is great clarity, a great understanding of the material she was using. Um, You know, food is nothing unless you put love into it. So there was a great deal of intelligence and a great deal of empathy with the ingredients she was handling to build this experience. Now, being uh, that she was, I think her first television show was 1948. Is that correct, Jill? 40, there's, there's, there are different dates floating around, 46, 47. Around that period. Yeah. I know it was, it was after James Beard, though. I think. Yes, yeah, right. yes. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, I mean, she, she, there's no question about it. She was wildly popular. She was the only cooking show on in on television, or a female cooking show. James Beard didn't last too long. He was not that television friendly <laughs> and so um, when she came about I think women were very very intrigued by her French technique yes we, we I've, I've spent some time with her son um, recently and we were rummaging around in a box and we found a poem by um, Edgar Allan Poe that um, referred to this Cordon Bleu who was clearly Dione but it was published in the New Yorker huh. and and there were all these sort of references to Cordon Bleu cooking and 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 the skill and the art it was a very clever little poem but anyone anyone in the know anyone cultured would know that that poem was referring to Dione so she really did have a you know a, a strong strong following yeah. I think um in uh, Jean Shinto points out that that she had originally was attracted to Dione Lucas. She found a, a cartoon in in the New Yorker that's men sitting at a bar with a woman on a television set above the bar. I, I think it actually made the cover, didn't it? It was on. I the, think yes, it was the cover yes. of New Yorker. Right, a, in, 
um, and and you know he was he was this woman who's who's not only is she on television but she's actually made inroads into this very male domain which is the public you know the bar. Yeah. Okay, so why with uh, with her excellent palate, her her wonderful uh, skills and technique and, uh, and and good instruction, well, perhaps a bit imperious instruction, why do you think she is largely forgotten? Because I would venture to say that you know those who are interested in food and television and of course too young to to have been there at the time um, why do you think that she was largely forgotten my feeling is that that everyone has their day and and you know they they are replaced but i also think that um it's you tell a great story by dragging things out of the closet and and presenting you know the things that that people find a little bit intriguing and mysterious and, and what have you. And I think there was a lot in Dione's life that was a bit interesting and, and, and unknown. Um, she was a follower of P.D. Ospensky and she spent a lot of time at, um, in a community at, at Mendham and this was portrayed as, as her belong to some sort a of cult. cult. Right, a cult um, file, a cult So, you know, she followed a cult. Um, she was a little prickly. She also suffered from very severe migraines and she self-medicated. She used to take a lot of codeine for her migraines and this gave the uh, people a lot of the impression that she was a drunk and that she drank too much. So there was this, you know, she's a, this is the story I hear all the time when I talk to people who didn't know Dione. They say, oh, you say, I know about her, she was a drunk. Mm. And it's actually something that Julia Child said in a public speech about her, that she was a drunk and that she belonged to a cult. So you get this this story about Dione spreading and, and then people start to look for um, things. And another classic story is that she cooked for Hitler and if you read the, the introduction to the recipe where she refers to Hitler she says, I worked in a hotel and this is the dish that Hitler liked. He used to eat this in the hotel but there's nothing in that introduction that connects her to cooking for Hitler. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, things have been taken out of context, things have been forgotten you know, she, so this, you think this is what, what Jean Shinto was referring to as misremembered yeah, when she mentioned that in the Gastronomica People article. have picked up the prickly side of her, which is the sort of the intriguing side of her, and, and run with it. Well, indeed, yeah. she was often referred to as um, too stiff and had that imperious style that she attempted to, to bring this European sophistication to... Middle America, but she was her her methods were a little too stiff. That she didn't have that, oh, yes. that the the passion for life and the and the carefree attitude that um, that subsequent television yes. stars did. Uh, just to build on what uh, Jill has said, Linda, uh, Dione had Dione had uh, she was not a homegrown product, and. Uh, Perhaps she was too professional, too perfectionist, and people looking to say, can I do this, mm-hmm. didn't see uh, what they saw in Julia Child, which was, whoops, I can make a mistake and it'll all come out all right in the end. That's right, yeah. So... Um, it was very difficult for her, and life as a pioneer in uh, a new area of expertise is always difficult. Yeah. Well, um, Jill, you mentioned that everyone has their day, and, and yet, I mean, we haven't forgotten Julia Child. Of course, we don't. We're still very n- close to her to her time. Who knows? You know, ten, fifteen years down the line, but I don't think that will happen. Well, with all the interest now in food and television. Right? Yes, yes. So I, I think that 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 certainly is is something to think about it was such a new 
it was new territory. Yes. When Dione was on television, it was unheard of. Yeah, it's interesting because um, uh, Dana Poland, um, professor of media and cinema studies at NYU, wrote a book on Julia Child, but all about food and television, uh, cooking on television. And uh, some of the research he did said that a lot of the programming was new, that she her program came on at nighttime, and it really should have been an afternoon show for the housewives who were at home, perhaps. Now, that brings me to something that you found that was so interesting, Jill, about Dione being used as a salesperson to bring television to Australia. Yes. Tell me a little a, bit about it's, that. It's a great story because when I... Um, at the start of my research, I was in, in contact with a Jean Shinto, who's done some work on Dione as well, and she sent me a little piece from a letter that she'd found at the Schlesinger Archive of Dione that, that, that talks Schlesinger, about... Schlesinger yes, Library and, and it, It's Dione writing to her producer here saying, well, look, you know, I really started TV in Australia. And Jean said to me, um, you know, Dione often self-promoted, and I think, you know, this is a, an example of her self-promoting. And... I went back into the archive later and, and, and I reminded, well, Australia didn't get television until 1956, 1956, which is a really long time. Yes. And the Australian government or the, the, the TV industry spent 10 years arguing about what sort of television we would have, whether we'd follow the British um, government-owned or whether we'd follow the American commercial television. So there was this big controversy. So... And there were also a lot of women's groups who didn't want television because they felt that it would be really destructive to family life and family values and disciplining children. So there was a there was a an excitement about television that was held back by this government discussion, and there was also this anti-television movement. So when television was was you know a couple of months away from starting, TV sales were very slow. Um, television sets were expensive but they were being manufactured there was no advertising yet because advertisers didn't want to put their money into tv because they had no no idea what was going to happen there were no programs no one knew what was going to be on so there was this thing well how are we going to start the television industry so dione was brought to australia by a women's magazine um the women's weekly the owner of the women's magazine also owned a brand new tv station Mm -hmm. and sydney newspapers so Dione got off the plane in Sydney and she was told, well, Dione, you're actually going to be broadcast on television because we're going to set up cameras in the store where you're demonstrating. We'll have 64 cameras set up around the store. You'll be cooking your demonstrations and we'll actually broadcast the demonstrations throughout the store. And at the same time, we're going to open a TV and radio exhibition so people can come and see you doing your cooking demonstration. But they won't all be able to fit in, so we'll encourage them to look at the TV sets then they can pop up to the radio and television exhibition and put Buy a down a payment on a TV. <laughs> but the thing was that women had, and it's the same in America as well, women had control of 80 to 90% of the household budget. And this was a well-known, um, well-known by the advertising marketing industry. So to get people to buy television sets, they had to first persuade women that it was a great thing to buy and they had to show women that it wasn't going to be bad for you know, family values because we'll do cooking shows on TV, which will be really good. So come along and see how it works and, you know, give your husband a nudge and get yourself a telly. Oh, so, and they had to encase it in a very nice piece of wood furniture. Yes, yes, <laughs> they they had beautiful 
um, veneer boxed sets and 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 we were actually manufacturing um, American style televisions in Australia. Admiral TV sets, I yeah, think, right, were. Right were an American brand, but they were being manufactured. And there was all this big hype around the fact that, you know, this was an American TV set that was being manufactured here. Right. So, great stuff. Well, there's a, there's another um, piece about Dione's television shows that we're going to get into, and, and Margaret, I'm going to refer to the magazine industry as well. Uh, and you touched on it, Jill, all about advertising. We're going to talk about that when we come back from the sponsor break. <laughs> You're listening to Thank You by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more A Taste of the Past. something it keeps on giving growing from friend to neighbor to community generations of gardeners have trusted bonnie for fresh healthy vegetable and herb plants rely on bonnie for quality plants help and support bonnie gardening with you since 1918 bonnieplants.com Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Jill Adams, a historian from Melbourne, Australia, and Margaret Happel, um, a magazine editor and, and uh, president of Les Dames d'Escoffier, New York chapter. And um, we were talking about how Dione Lucas was instrumental in selling television sets and, and convincing the Australian public um, to buy televisions, buy into television, and yet her shows never played on television. Is that correct? No, Australia didn't buy her. We, I mean, we set up our own um, cooking shows. So she was Australia. used. She was. <laughs> she was. She was used. One of the funny things that she actually uh, said when she did, you know, she 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 was brought out here to start television. There's no doubt about it. But she wrote very innocently to her producer telling him how she'd actually started television and what she wrote was that she'd um, been cooking in the TV in the, you know, the studio or the demonstration kitchen and they'd noticed a fire on a rooftop over on one of the other buildings. So she said to the camera crew, look, go down there and film the fire and so they trotted off, did what she said because she was the, clearly the professional and filmed the fire and then they did a running commentary. So, And she says at the end, so, you know, there we are. I did the very first news news event on Australian television and but 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 it was meant as a you know light-hearted right, gesture right. to her producer but in fact you know she was the first 
among the first people to ever broadcast television in Australia. Well, there is, um, uh, having been in television production, there there is a large, a big reason why she, her shows were not, the rights to those shows weren't bought at that time and run on Australian television is because in those days we didn't have paid Advertisements, You know, there weren't these advertising companies who came out with these glossy, slick ads, which sometimes are better than the shows themselves. She was her own spokesperson. She had sponsors, and she had to do her own sponsorship. Uh, often we still do that in radio. You'll, you'll hear a lot. Um, so that you will hear her, like in the lead-in we did, she's welcome to my gas kitchen. She said, and now I'll go over to my lovely caloric gas range. Well, you couldn't air that show because... They weren't selling those products. Okay, that was the same reason why her uh, the the segments, her shows, were not rebroadcast for many years on American televisions like Julia Child's are. It wasn't until many years later, and in fact, it was 1993, um, and we were many of us were you know working on the the Food Network, the TV Food Network, just getting it on the air, and. Um, Bought the one of the company had bought the rights to some of Julia Child's and Dione Lucas's shows, and so I first met my dear friend Anda Ravel, and her job was to edit these pieces for the format that would fit television. Now it then that was kind of tough because there were so many ads and commercials in her in her directions for things. You know, use these great eggs from you know, and she'd name the name products. That was one of the criticisms of her. They said that separated her from some of the other cooking stars, such as Julia Child, because she was a talking brand. Everything had a brand attached to it, but it wasn't her fault. That was what her that was what her job was, she and that's was, how it put her on. She right. was very, very heavily commercialized. Yes, yeah, and yeah. and you know she thought she was selling. You know, this is what Kathleen Collins says in her book, um, "Watching What We Eat." She thought she was selling. Cordon Bleu cooking to American housewives, but in fact, you know, she selling was selling. Products. But I, I do, I did read a very funny little story in something I was looking at the other day, where she, she was speaking one of these advertisements, and it was she had to do an advertisement for an instant pudding, and she said, "Oh, you know, you just mix this instant pudding up with um, with milk, and then you put it in the fridge and forget about it." And the, the sponsors were furious. <laughs> But yeah. you know, who knows whether she was having a go at the pudding or That's whether right. it was just a slip of the tongue. But yeah, but yeah. you know, I rather suspect she was in Australia. The sponsors got a bit cross with her too because one of the knife companies was sponsoring her, and um, she was up doing her demonstration, saying, "Oh, look, you know, use any old knife, any old knife that you've got, as long as it's nice and sharp, it'll it'll do the job perfectly." Mm. And the knife sponsors going. <laughs> well, Margaret, you can relate to that because um, certainly the magazine industry was heavily run by sponsorship and and uh, advertisements well the uh, the whole profit picture in a, a magazine is obviously ad derived right. um, it's interesting to hear Jill talk about uh, the very strong on air connection between the personality and the ad um, that in the magazine business didn't happen uh, there's a very uh, a line as a strong line drawn we used to say it, uh, the advertising is between church and state mm-hmm. and um, we, we, the lines were very rarely crossed and when we featured a personality uh, you the, their commercial connection was very much downplayed um, I don't think people realize that Jim Beard did a lot of consultancy work for Pillsbury um, 
Julia Child was as pure as a driven snow. She had no commercial connection. No, she and she uh, refused to, yes. to endorse anything. Uh, and it is only recently, I think, we have seen the print media and the advertising media move closer together. That's right. You know, it's it, there was a time when we had to cover all anything on camera, cans, bottles. You, you could not show the brand. I mean, you could obviously tell a Coca-Cola bottle by its shape, but it would have to be covered. Um, cans of Campbell's soup. They were just these generic things that would appear on camera. And now, what do we have? As you said, Margaret, now they're coming closer together. We have product placement, yes, right? In definitely. movies and television. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, uh, Dione was um, certainly a household name in her time. And we were talking earlier before the show, the three of us, about how maybe. You know her demeanor was. I mean, her. Per- you can't really change a person's personality. I mean, you can, you can give them training. You can give them a script. You can't change their basic personality. And she was who she was. I thought maybe the American public just didn't get her sense of humor. I thought she had a very dry, very witty sense of humor. And maybe it was lost large and for a large part on the American public who didn't uh, care for her and 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 carry on her her work, and yet she had a huge following. Uh, any comments from either of you? What do you think? In Australia, I've, I've been lucky enough to make contact with people who came to her demonstrations. So, you know, I put out a little, if anyone saw Dione at, at a demonstration, can you get in touch with me? And I've done a number of... of, um, of I've, I've, I've been in touch with a number of people who went to her demonstrations. One woman told me about... You know the strudel story. How she rolled the strudel out really thin, and she put the. You know, she, they, they all say she was a great performer. Another woman who's become a very famous food writer in Australia said that it changed the way she thought about food, and she went straight home and stuffed a leg of lamb with a rice pilau, a la Dione, and went off on her cooking career. Dione demonstrated to Graham Kerr in Australia. A young oh. Graham Kerr came to one of her demonstrations. She had a. No one in Australia who went to her demonstrations has anything negative to say. In fact, I spoke to a, um, a woman who produced um, a series of, of half-hour cooking segments when she came in 1960, and she said she, when she went to France years later, it, the France that she went to was the one that Dione had shown her through cooking. And she said she was so gracious, she was so friendly, and the... the, the camera crew all went up afterwards and ate the food and mm. she was just this really lovely woman. So that didn't come across in Australia at all for, well, from, from, from what I've been told um, and I wonder whether initially it didn't come across here either, whether it was just later when we've got something else to compare it to that Quite that possibly so, although, although in a couple of different articles in some research I was reading I mean during the 50s uh, Many American housewives referred to her as the oracle of the kitchen. I mean, they really respected her. Now, respect doesn't necessarily mean that they empathized, empathized, or yes. lo- or loved her, yes. or you know wanted to be in the kitchen with her. <gasps> kind of like what, what did somebody say? Maybe it was your article, Jill. I'm not sure. Like uh, the science professor, or no, it was Jean Shinto. Like the sci- you know, like a science professor who you fear, and yet. You do respect. You yes. know, you're timid around them because she could be that way. She could be. Well, quite... her, her cooking classes were very challenging. Cooking classes mm-hmm. too. And this, I mean, this has to. Dione had cooking classes. Not she didn't just get up and demonstrate three dishes to a group of people. She gave you a choice of what you wanted to cook, 
And so in any class that she had, say she had 12 people in a class, she could have 12 people cooking 12 different dishes, which, which um, you know, had to be shopped for. And so she was supervising a number of people doing quite complex tasks and they were all different. And she sometimes ran three cooking classes a day. That is a lot. So I kind of, you know, as, a, as someone who's been a cooking teacher and kind of worked in the food industry, I see her pain often when I, you know, when I read these things. All right. And Margaret, you were saying a, a part of her, as some people say, well, she had a dour countenance to her or, a, you know, a, um, aside from the stiff and imperious, yes. something dour. And she, she had a hard life, as we know, uh, Linda. It's also interesting you talk about the sense of humor. Uh, we have to forget that um, the Atlantic has become the pond since Dione came here. And our understanding of two nations as they're separated by a common tongue has really lessened. I always think of uh, Saturday Night Live, which was really, in my estimation, an offshoot of a British satirical humor program called That Was the Week That Was. Hmm. It's understood on both sides of the Atlantic now, whereas in the 50s it wouldn't have been. And Dione had that satirical tongue-in-cheek humor that was very difficult to understand um, since we weren't traveling as much as we are. Absolutely. Radio and television didn't come as close as they do today. And computers, of course. Now of all course. the cooking instruction are, you know, is, is online on the internet as you're listening to our internet radio station. I mean, it, the, the world has come a long way. But she... An example we were talking about earlier, she just it would be offhand. She wouldn't hesitate. She wouldn't change her delivery at all. She would be telling the amounts that you put into a bowl. And here, then you need a thousand grains of salt. See, I've poured it into my hand so I can make sure that there are a thousand grains of salt. I mean, and it went on to the next step. And if you're not listening carefully, you miss it. And it's it's actually quite funny. It really is. <laughs> and I also read where she. What you mentioned, Jill, giving a cooking lesson of 12 different dishes at the same time and doing that three times over. She also would cook. Uh, she'd work in her restaurant. She would uh, work in the store. She'd do a television show. She'd go off and cater an event for 60 or 80 people that night. I mean, And then she'd go down to Mendham on the weekend and cook for the community there. So she really didn't have much time to put her feet up and she was non-stop relax. yeah mm. non-stop amazing well you and then you of course you know just tossed in the name there of Graham Kerr and you have to understand too we have there's this whole generation almost like two generations now of people who have no recollection of who Graham Kerr is. exactly so, you know it's yes. those we do get reruns of um, that's and that's the the um, part of the problem with Dione but um, I think she was replaced in large part by a much bigger personality and that and she is sort of hiding in the shadows to this day I think yes uh, I think again it's, it's background Linda um, Julia came from a much more stable background and was uh, confident in the way she was expensive uh, Dione came um, under very difficult circumstances and you point out how hard she worked I think that is very much part of the immigrants syndrome that yes. you work very hard to establish yourself well and, and in trying to um, uh, to bring this European cuisine to middle America you know the sense of sophistication she was you know quite erudite in in the in her manner and instructions and this is how it's supposed to look and you don't make any mistakes as opposed to Julia Child who 
you know, it was an, well, Dione was a little intimidating, I imagine. And Julia let you know that you could make mistakes, Margaret, as you had pointed out earlier. You could make mistakes, and it was all right. Yes. It would come out all right in the end. And I think we, and that engendered a lot of love and affection to her as far as, you know, being a cook in the kitchen. It's a difference yes. of, of personalities. Well, Julia was the next step beyond Dione, the sensibility and sensitivity to food, right. and yet uh, inheriting the knowledge that being relaxed, being informal is going to hold the day. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the professor and giving a lecture. And it's just food. Have yeah. a good time with of it. Course. And have a bit of a passion for life. But Dione certainly had that passion. It just didn't come across in the same way. It, it was art. Food and art. cooking work. Yes. And art. Absolutely. And she, she herself was an artist being trained as a jeweler first. Um, well, as an apprentice to her father, she but. was um, she 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 learned jewelry, Jewel, and right. um, her father was a very well known um, architect and silversmith in the arts and crafts period. And his book on silversmithing is still used hmm. um, in the in teaching now. Um, she was a, a very very good cellist, and she was at the conservatorium hmm. um, in Paris learning cello when she moved to cooking. So there's a, there's a lot so there's a, there's of seriousness a, in there. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, indeed. Well, James Beard was one who commented that um, her, her hands moved so quickly and so artfully, and he was always impressed by, by the speed of her hands. Yes, I was always impressed how beautiful and how young her hands were. Oh, were uh, and I saw her in the last year of her life. Interesting. And I... You know, it, that was really a wonderful. To, it's like a pianist playing. You know, <laughs> see, see how nimble and how knowing her hands were. Right. Well, can we expect um, some kind of new publication on Dione Lucas from you, Jill? Perhaps. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'd love to tackle a biography of, of of Dione. That's that's sort of what I'm working towards. Well, well we can we can just yes. hope and wait for that. And I hope that um, our listeners. I hope we've. I hope we've kind of brought a little picture of who this woman was to your world and if you find any information about her if you want to look her up and learn more about her she it was really quite fascinating and it was in the nascent period of of television the first really truly instructive cooking show that we had on television well thank you both for joining me you you've given me so much new information and shared your wonderful first-hand experiences as well and i thank my listeners too and hope that you will all help in the um, effort here at Heritage Radio Network to be a member. We are member-supported, and this is the end of our membership drive. And keep these great programs coming. Thank you so much. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.